Well, what does the resurrection mean to you? Maybe you, uh, maybe you never really thought about a good definition for that, but at Restoration, we don't just believe that um, God saves the world. Certainly, we believe that, but we believe that God pursues people personally and restores them to himself. So maybe you couldn't relate to Mary's story and and maybe you couldn't relate to Peter's story, but maybe you'll relate to uh, a lady named Michelle, close personal friend of mine, um, who, uh, who, who starts out her story with, you know, I, don't really, I didn't really think I needed restoring. I didn't really think anything was broken. And, and maybe you're here today and that's kind of your thought process, is, you know, I'm pretty good. Things are pretty okay. Life is just fine. So maybe Michelle's story is the one that you'll relate to today. So turn your attention to the screen. Hello, my name is Michelle Jacobson, and this is my restoration story. My life didn't really need restoring. I grew up in a Christian home, went to church regularly, sang in the church choir, participated in confirmation, and even went to some retreats along the way. I'm the youngest of three kids. I have two older brothers and wonderful parents. My parents provided a lot of opportunities for us, and raised us with good values, taught us to dream big and to be respectful of others and to be thankful for what we had. When I was eight years old, I decided to try the sport of trampoline. I was in a lot of different sports as a child, but eventually became really serious about trampoline. By the time I was 10, I was competing nationally. And when I was 12, I was ranked number one in the United States overall. At that point, I was practicing 12 to 15 hours a week, and I was competing internationally. I went to Europe a couple times for specialized training and competitions. After reaching the level of achievement in trampoline, I began to wonder what was next for me. I didn't have the desire to continue, and I started to question the significance of being the best or one of the best trampolinists in the U.S., It really didn't matter all that much to me. I could also see that trampoline had no real value for me as far as looking for scholarship money in the future. When I approached my coach on quitting, she tried hard to convince me to stay in the sport, reminding me that trampoline was going to be added to the Olympics soon. But as a 12-year-old, that really didn't matter to me. I wasn't convinced I should continue. And why did the Olympics matter? So what if I could call myself an Olympian? So I decided to pursue something that might be more fruitful for my future. I joined the diving team in seventh grade and became the first seventh grader in Olson Junior High with a letter jacket. It hung to my knees, but that was okay. I would grow into it. I wasn't even five feet tall then. It turned out that my high school diving coach was great and I joined her summer diving team. Thus began my diving career. My diving coach is both a coach and a mentor and a youth pastor of sorts. She strengthened my strengths, tolerated my weaknesses, and she loved me through it all. After six years together, she helped me choose a college where I could continue diving while also pursuing strong academics. During my junior high and high school years, I was quite successful with six varsity letters in diving, five varsity letters in gymnastics, and another varsity letter in track. 
I was a high school All-American diver and All-State many times. I was well-known in high school as an athlete. I was even well-known in junior high as an athlete. I would hear juniors and seniors calling out or talking to each other about, hey, look at that little Sebi. She's already got a letter jacket, and I can't even earn a letter as a junior. This was a big deal to me because most people didn't know who I was in junior high. I was probably the smallest kid in my entire school. I was 70 pounds, 4 foot 10 inches tall, obviously not developed, had short hair, and most people thought I was a boy. I clung onto my athletic identity in order to get through those years. As I was preparing for college, there was a small piece of me that began to wonder what would happen to me when I was done with diving. Who would I be and where would I go? I was too afraid to face that even though I was starting to have doubts. So I went to college where I could pursue strong academics and dive just as everyone expected me to. I had success as a Division I athlete, but it took a toll on me. I wasn't the best. I practiced 20 to 25 hours a week, had a full class load, and felt like I had to go to the team parties. My second year, I hurt my back pretty bad and was sick a lot. The stress in my body was too much, and it became clear to me that I needed to quit diving after all and focus on academics. My biggest fear was facing me. What next? Who am I? If I can't dive, then I'm not an athlete. I began to realize that my entire identity was wrapped in being an athlete. I knew no other. Many of my friends from diving were older than me, and they had graduated after my second year. I had a few friends that I lived with my third year and one friend that I lived with my fourth year of college. My life had changed drastically from my second year to my third year. I went from belonging to a team, contributing to a Division I college team, socializing with friends, to having few friends, no practices, no schedule, no coach to motivate me for the next thing. As I began to ponder this, I tried to focus on academics, knowing that I wanted to get into grad school. I was entering into a very lonely time of my life. Not only did I have few friends, I had few people who knew me. I didn't really belong anywhere. I had no identity. I started to read my Bible here and there. I didn't really know why, other than that, it was something I could turn to when I was feeling really lonely. I didn't have a best friend. I didn't have any one person that I could count on at college. I started to hear God speak to me, but didn't really understand who that voice was or where it was coming from. In the summer between my third and fourth years of college, I accepted a nanny job and lived with the family for that summer. It's funny how God works because the mom of that family was a strong believer and she began to mentor me. My eyes were opened up that summer, and I began to see that God was not as far away as I thought. I began praying and went back to college my fourth year. I didn't really know why, wasn't really sure how or what really to pray about, but I found myself praying. So I tried to listen to God for what I should be talking to him about. I found myself praying that God would put a Christian man in my life. I didn't really know what that looked like or what exactly that meant. 
but it sounded good. Over Christmas break, I met Rab. It was very clear to me that Rab was that Christian man that I had been praying about. I was a little afraid about what my next prayer would be. Lord, is this the man that you have for me to marry? I was a little afraid because Rab had told me that he might pursue ministry someday. I didn't at all desire to be pastor's wife, nor was I qualified. I didn't know anything about the Bible, except the few things I had learned in confirmation. I didn't go to a Bible college like all their good pastor's wives, and I was not interested in being prim and proper and living in a fishbowl. I had a lot of reasons why I shouldn't marry Rob. Mind you, we had only known each other for a couple months when all of this was going through my mind. But God kept laying it on my heart that he would deal with that later. It became obvious to both Rob and I that God had brought us together for a purpose. As I had been led to pray and read my Bible more and more, but still not really understanding the why, what, or how, Rob helped make that clear to me, that God was in pursuit of me, and that he wants us to be in relationship with him. That night in the spring of my fourth year of college, I committed my life to Christ. I put him in the center of my life and began pursuing him with passion. I began to understand that it was God's faithfulness that brought me out of my lonely place. He also answered my naive prayer for a Christian man. I also began to understand that my true identity was in and through Christ. Ultimately, I was a child of God. I belonged to him, and that was enough. God doesn't require success stories, achievements, or hard work to belong. All that he requires is a choice for him. My identity crisis was over. My searching was over. I was restored. I was now a child of God and a follower of Christ. My next quest would be, what is my response to my new identity? As Rob and I began discussing marriage, I started praying, Lord, change my heart to be open to embrace a life of ministry. Lord, I am so confident that you have brought Rob and I together to be married. And I trust that you will change my heart if ministry is what you have for Rob. I pray this prayer joyfully at times, and I prayed it in sorrow. I was not at all excited for what a life of ministry would mean or could mean for us and for a future family. I had some pretty worldly standards that I had been looking forward to. A two-story house with white picket fence. I was going to be a stay-at-home mom. My husband would provide everything we would ever possibly need. We'd go on regular vacations. We'd attend church for one hour on Sunday mornings as a family. Nevertheless, I continued to pray this prayer and many more. My identity in Christ has been the anchor through youth ministry, through church changes, having children, having a miscarriage, and being truly led by God to start a church with Rob. It's not the life I would have chosen, but it's the life that God has for me. And it's the life where I truly experience God.
Every day is a new adventure when I am centered on Christ. I will never be the perfect pastor's wife, but Rob will never be the perfect pastor, and I'm sure we'll never have the perfect pastor's family. But God has shown me in my story that he doesn't require perfection. He doesn't require success stories or achievements or hard work to belong. All that he requires is a choice for him. My name is Michelle Jacobson, and this is my restoration story. Well, if you are a three, four, or five-year-old-ish, you can go out and you got some fun kids' activities for about 15 more minutes. So um, if you want to go get candy and talk about Jesus, um, then you can... Your parents will have to deal with the candy later. They might even be generous on the five-year-old. Well, as we designed this Easter service and and thought about and prayed about what we would do, um, we thought these three stories captured some of the essence of resurrection. And you've heard three stories of people who are trapped by something. They were captive to something, either sin or Satan or self. And they all needed to be rescued. They all needed some restoration. Mary had these demons, um, and she was oppressed, and she needed to be freed from them, and she got a new life in Christ. Peter was a fisherman, he, he left that fishing vocation to have a new life, and yet he denied it, went back to his old life, and needed to be, he was alone at that time, and needed to be restored and redeemed and receive that new life. And Michelle was, didn't seem trapped, but yet was ruled by self and, and really lived for those accomplishments, and that accomplishment became her identity. And then when those things were gone, really was alone and really was left to wonder who am I really, truly, I want to say abandoned, but, um, but alone and needed to be redeemed and needed new life. And I would love to say that Easter is just about new life and we can go home and we can say yay, um, yay for Easter. But as the uh, worship folder maybe graphically depicts, we don't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday. We don't have resurrection unless something dies first. God didn't create death. It wasn't part of his original plan. Death came because Satan rebelled as an angel of God, and then the world and and people rebelled and chose self and chose Satan over God and over his plan, and there's been suffering in the world ever since. And the world has been ruled by Satan and ruled by sin ever since then. So we shouldn't really be surprised that there's suffering on the earth um, because if we're left to ourselves, we're going to face a lifetime of suffering and a lifetime of sin and a lifetime of of misery and aloneness and, and I guess slavery, if you will. But the best part is that God didn't leave it that way. He didn't say, well, you know, you didn't choose me, so too bad for you. He, he sent Jesus to fulfill this covenant, to fulfill this agreement to these people that he had Israel. 
and to fulfill these promises to redeem and restore the world. And he lived this perfect life. And his life was not ruled by sin. It was not ruled by Satan. There are two ways to have eternal life. Maybe you didn't know that, but there are two. You can either live a perfect life or you can trust in Jesus. And Jesus lived this perfect life, not ruled by those things. And his perfect life took him to a cross. And in that perfect life and on that cross, he exposed sin and he exposed Satan and he exposed death for what it was. And so on the cross, he took all the hatred and all the destruction and all the sin and all the selfishness and all the perversion and all the abuse and all the addictions and all the slander and all the gossip and all the debauchery and all the shame and all the death upon his innocent life. And with that, he took all the judgment and all the power and all the hatred that Satan had for the world and that was all poured out on him on that cross because we denied God. And in that moment, Satan lost his authority and he lost his power and he lost his right to judge on that cross. And in a way, I don't quite fully understand He descended into hell. Why? To get the authority to take back that right and that rule, the keys to the kingdom, if you will. Take that back and take it away from Satan. And because he lived perfectly and because he lived innocently, death could not hold him and he rose from the grave. And with that, he took the keys and the authority to judge and the authority to rule and the authority and the power to live in this new world. And he took it away from Satan. And so Satan does not have that power and that authority anymore. And he would love to tell you differently. But if you have come to believe in Jesus, then the only way Satan has power is if you hand it over to him. And he's a wonderful deceiver. And even though he's defeated, he still lives to deceive. In in, in Jesus' victory over the grave, he showed the world that he, he, he rules and reigns and defeats sin and defeats death and defeats Satan and he invites us to follow him. And all we have to do is choose to put him at the center of our life and to give him our allegiance. And then his life becomes our life. And then his resurrection becomes our resurrection. And it is our choice. And and Colossians 2 says it so beautifully. These are just magnificent words from the Bible that said, in one translation, when you were spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self... God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all your sin. He canceled the debt which listed all the rules we failed to follow. He took away the record with its rules and nailed it to the cross. And in that, God stripped the spiritual rulers and the powers of their authority. And with the cross, he won the victory and he showed the world that they were powerless. It's not that those things didn't matter. It's not that those sins weren't wrong. He canceled them because they were were put on that cross. And so when, when God looks at you and you wonder if you're good enough, Michelle said, I wasn't qualified to live this life. Well, guess what? Mary wasn't qualified either. And Peter wasn't qualified either. And I'm not qualified either. And none of us are qualified. We don't have to. God doesn't look at us and put our list of do's and don'ts on a list and weigh them. 
When he looks at, if, if we've trusted in Jesus, when he looks at us, he sees the life of Jesus. He sees the sinless life of Jesus. The, the, the things that I've done wrong and that you've done wrong, they're gone. And that's what God looks at. But if we want the new life, we have to give up the old life. If we want to live in the resurrection, then what has to die is the old life. And it's, it's not hard. It's a simple decision. It's a decision that no one can make except you for yourself. And it just says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that life. I'm going to invite Christ into my life. I want him to be the center of my life, and I'm making that decision. My mind is turned. And it is a surrender. As you heard in Michelle's story, this is not the life I would have chosen, but it is the best life that God has for me. And that's what we believe. When we give our lives to Christ, he gives us a better life than we can imagine. It doesn't mean it's a life that's not filled with suffering. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It still means there's going to be hurt because the world isn't yet fully restored. But, but the reversal happened at the cross and it will one day be restored. The Bible talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And at one point we will live where there is no pain and there is no tears and there is no suffering. And that will be a glorious day. But until then, we kind of ache and we groan and we wait for it. And so if you want the new life, you can just give up the old one. It's a simple decision. It's one you can pray. In fact, if it's your decision today, I'll even help you pray it. And so if this is your heart, you can pray this with me. And it's, here's an example of something that, um, something that was on my heart um, this week. Um, thank you, God, that you made us to know you and to love you and to find our life and our belonging and our relationship with the world and you in this new life with you at the center. God, I admit that I put other things in the center of my life. You can be specific on what it is for you. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's a material thing. God, I admit I put other things in the center of my life. And that's hurt me, that's hurt other people, but now I choose to put you at the center of my life because of Jesus, because of his life. I accept that he went to the cross to defeat death. God, I accept that on that cross he took all sin and in that he took my sin. And he died a death that that really I deserved. And I ask you, Jesus, that you would come into my life, that you would be the center of my life, and I commit to you I want you to be my healer, my forgiver, my leader, my savior, my Lord. God, thank you for restoring me. Thank you for restoring that relationship with you. May you restore relationships with other people, God. And I ask that you would change me from the inside out. And if that's your heart's desire today and you've never prayed that prayer, then I encourage you to say, that's my prayer today. That's who I am today. We have these flowers that are up in the front. They're beautiful. Um, Jesus tells a story about these lilies of the valley. Um, and he says, look at the lilies of the valley. They don't toil, they don't work hard, and yet God takes care of them. Aren't you more valuable than flowers? And we believe that, that we are more valuable than flowers, and yet in the midst of that, that's a symbol 
of our lives. And as each one is unique and each one is beautiful and colorful, um, they can today represent us. So if you've ever decided to lay your life down or to have Jesus be at the center of your life, then I encourage you to take one of these flowers in just a few moments. To not only take that, but then to walk it up to the cross. And as a, a maybe a first-time decision, amen for that, or maybe as a, a decision that you've made and you're just confirming that again, you're saying, God, I have walked with you, you're at the center of my life, and I ask you to continue to be at the center of my life. I encourage you to just lay that flower down at the foot of the cross, which symbols that your life is given over to Jesus. So the band is going to play, and we're going to close with some uh, two more songs. But in this moment, in this time, just ask yourself, have I really made that decision? And if you've never made that decision before, and you're making it for the first time, then when you go up there, I just encourage you to hold it up as high as you can to say, I am done, boom, and lay it down. And there will be people that will say amen. They'll maybe do the wave. It's a good day. Because it's a day that you no longer follow yourself, but, but Jesus is in charge. Um, so be bold to come up uh, as, as you feel led. Take a moment to just evaluate your life and where you're at with God. And then either for the first time or because you've already done it before, take one of those flowers and set it at the cross. Um, you'll be able to take a flower home with you later. Um, but in this moment, this is our act of worship. So I encourage you to come forward. That is our prayer, Father God, that we... Is there an amen for that? Amen. He is exalted. And Jesus said that when you lay down your life for me, you find true life. And so in that spirit of you laying down your life for Jesus, he gives our life back to us. And so we want you to receive these flowers as a gift for us, and we want you to go and live in this new life. If if you're a guest today or you made that prayer for the first time, we have some people and some gifts in the back um, at that table. There's also some cookies that I do not need to eat. Maybe I do, but I need you to help me eat. Um, make a new friend and uh, hear the words of this messenger, this angel that said to Mary, Mary, don't be afraid. He has risen. Go and live the new life with Jesus. That's our prayer today. Happy Easter. Have a great day.